Hello, hello. Get ready for a journey through time with the Historians podcast, hosted by myself, Derek Mulligan, and my co-historian, Neil Federson-Hall. We invite you into our virtual living room for weekly fireside chats with world-renowned historians and authors. From ancient history to present day, the Historians covers it all with guests who have lived and experienced the stories they share. Join myself and Neil as we whiz back and forth through time, exploring the truth behind historical events that turn out to be way stranger and more exciting than fiction. So grab a cuppa and get ready to be transported to another time and place. Tune in now to join our history-loving community. Here we go. Hello, Neil. Hello, Derek. How's it going? It's going well. You know, it's just great to be talking to some real people about real things and all things <laughs> history, isn't it? It's just great fun. Yeah, well, this this is maybe perhaps a little bit too real in, in some regards. Our guest today is Alex Wellerstein, mm. and we're going to speak to him about a book he wrote called Restricted Data, which uh, doesn't sound too deadly, but uh, it is dealing with a very, very serious uh, topic, and that is nuclear secrets, particularly Ooh. in the US. What has been kept from the public, uh, how it has affected nuclear strategy, and you know what are the stockpiles? Where are the nukes? We live in an age, I, I, I thought when Reagan met Gorbachev, that was the end of the nuclear war, but mm. apparently not. I think Alex is here now. So hello, Alex. Welcome to the Hello. Hi, it's Alex. I'm glad Welcome to be aboard. here. Where are you joining us from? I'm in Hoboken, New Jersey, so just across the water from New York City. All right. This is Frank Sinatra territory, no? It's where Frank Sinatra was born, and uh, he hated it. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so there's no statues? This is the, there, there are statues, but this is the little town he sings about getting out of to go oh, to the big right. city. So it's a little bit of uh, a uh, complicated relationship. And, and yeah, how, not, how do you feel about Hoboken? Do you want to get out of it or is it okay? Oh, I think it's the ideal compromise. I think living in the big city is a whole lifestyle that is, you know, a pain in the neck in many ways. But where yeah. we live, we get sort of uh, in between and I can be in the city in about 20 minutes. So it's 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 anything I, uh, I love it over here. Happy days. Well, you know, Frank had his say, so we'll, we leave we leave that to Frank and uh, and move on. As Derek said, to quite a, a weighty subject for to be discussing this afternoon here in Dublin. And um, as Derek said, Reagan, Gorbachev. You know, we lived. You know, we were kids of the eighties. I vaguely remember. Do you, Derek? There was like TV programs, um, shreds. I think was was the name of one of them, and it was like. Yeah, BBC it was one. Scary. Yeah, yeah, it was scary. Day, day after tomorrow was the, the, day after the US tomorrow. equivalent. Yeah, it was like you know showing all these kids hiding under school desks. Neil, I I had it like we we lived three miles from the centre of Dublin city, and I was thinking, well, okay, if the UK gets it, we're probably going to get it. Right, three miles out, I think I can survive this. Okay, so we got to get the the bedding downstairs. We got to get the planks. We got to make the little shelter in the hallway. We had a little bit of understairs space. So I'm going, yeah. We're okay. We'll get over the, the main blast. Yeah. Maybe the radiation will have to head to the hills. And this was in my little head going over and over and over right and, throughout the 80s. And how old how old were you when this was going on? This is, well, okay, so I'm 1975. So, I mean, you're, you're, you're talking, you know, from 1984 onwards, I was very aware of uh, nuclear weapons. But, but how old were you? Like, like were, were you worrying about this stuff? Oh, like 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, that's your childhood there, um, kind of kind of explained the way that you, you had these, yeah. these worries, you know. Joking aside, I, I think I vaguely would have been aware of it, let's say, if not having actual, you know, fears. But surely, you know, we've not gone back to those dark days, Alex. Surely, surely we're not we're not back to Derek's hiding his, his frost childhood or should we be should we still should our children have have the same concerns these days really i mean the threat of nuclear war has sort of waxed and waned uh hmm. but it hasn't totally ever gone away the weapons are still around you're you're always and i think the last 
last year in particular was a nice illustration of this. You're, you're only one crisis away from worrying about this stuff again. You can go from not worrying about it to thinking it's going to happen in a matter of weeks, depending on the uh, who's in charge of the countries that have these weapons and that you know, can change rather quickly and they can be rather capricious. Uh, whether or not you should be making shelters or whether or not you should be, um, you know, teaching children to think about this as part of the panoply of threats that they worry about, that's a sort of deeper question and, and one that often I think isn't asked. Even today, it's it's rather controversial if you suggest that people ought to know that children ought to be aware of this, uh, even though um, I don't know how it is in Ireland, but in the United States, we teach children about a lot of different possible threats, some man-made and some not. We have all sorts of training here for children uh, not just for earthquakes and tornadoes and all of the million natural disasters that we have in the United States, but but also, as you know, the the man-made ones like school shootings, uh, things like that. So if, if nuclear uh, war is somewhere in the universe of possible things, maybe it should be on children's mind along with everything else that they have to stress about these days. Right. Okay. And like, true, we'll get into get into your, your work in a moment, but on a personal level, through your research, through your writing, and from what you understand, are, are you worried on a day-to-day -day basis about nuclear war? You know, you know that scene in the Avengers where the Hulk's, you know, they say, oh, you have to get angry. And he says, that's my secret. I'm always angry. It, it's kind of like that. Like people ask me, are you worried? You know, it'll be Russia threatening something and they'll say, are you worried about nuclear war? And I say, well, you know, I'm always a little worried about nuclear war. Uh, the way I put it is my base awareness of nuclear weapons and the possibility of nuclear war is probably higher than your average person's. Mm -hmm. It's probably uh, if we were going to make it rough, just made up numbers let's say i'm 25 percent, even on a good happy warm day it's 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 all it's on my mind a little bit it doesn't mean it's the first thing on my mind it doesn't mean that i'm planning my life around it but it's up there with other things that i worry about for sure when we get into a state of crisis or where it looks like there might be more possibility my status certainly elevates with other people's, but it doesn't go up to 100. And I think the, the problem that a lot of at least Americans have, and I don't know if it's the same thing in Ireland, is that they worry about it 0% of the time, most of the time, and then a crisis comes and they go all the way up to 100. And when you do that kind of rapid shift, it's not only very stressful, but it can encourage you to support really terrible ideas, like thinking, you know, maybe we should just start the war and get it over with. Mm -hmm. And that's not a good idea. That's a terrible idea. I think a more measured view would see it as, well, there's going to be this threat around. And yeah, there are times that are more elevated than others. But uh, the same forces that have kept that from erupting in the past, hopefully will keep it from erupting uh, in the present. But you can't guarantee that ever. So you shouldn't be complacent about it. So that's sort of my position. I definitely have thought about it. There's been times that I think are more risky than others. Mm -hmm. uh, I think kind of maybe surprisingly, Sometimes my perceptions of what's dangerous are not the same as everybody else's or the media's. So like, for example, the Russia-Ukraine situation, I, I haven't been as worried as the general tenor of the media about that becoming a nuclear war, not because I believe in the infinite rationality of anybody involved, but uh, it, 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 it is just hard for me to see under which conditions, even as irrational and confused as Putin has been at times, what conditions he would be under to think that was a good idea. And this is also a, these are a dynamic NATO and, and Russia, uh, United States and Russia, that is, is old enough that it's, it feels pretty familiar. Everybody knows what's going on on either side. People have a pretty good idea of what capabilities everybody has. Nobody is under the delusion that they could somehow get away with starting nuclear war and not have it come back on them. I was much more worried with the North Korea crisis uh, because that's a much more complicated situation. It's much more asymmetrical. You could easily imagine situations in which uh, the leader of North Korea, Kim Jong-un, thought that the United States was about to attack him first and could react 
uh, out of anger in that respect. It's also a situation with them where going first would give him a significant likelihood of actually being able to use his nukes. So anyway, that's the kind of situation that for me as a historian is much more dicey in many ways. So I'm not saying I haven't been following the Russia stuff very closely and and concerned and all, all that, but uh, for me, that was in some ways much more likely to go nuclear. It felt that way than the Russia-Ukraine situation. But, you know, who knows? My, my, I don't know what's going to happen either. Yeah, that, that's, that's, really inter- that, that's really interesting, Alex, because I would have said this time last year, right, January last year, I would have thought, you know, those fears of nuclear, somewhere in the background, you got to worry more about paying your car insurance and, and getting the kids to school. <laughs> but, but, but now, but, you know, fast forward, like we're coming up to a year anniversary, of the, the Russian invasion of Ukraine, th- there has been talk of nuclear, the nuclear option. It, it's not something that was, you know, kind of hinted at. The Russians have openly said that they would consider it an option under like certain, you know, parameters, like, you know, if 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 any of their particular land was invaded, like their space, as it were, like this is actively conversation. You have high up Russian ministers openly discussing this so that's what you know it's it's a real real thing to be thinking about now now it's interesting that you should mention about north korea i've kind of forgotten all about that because this <laughs> this because this has taken over but you know you're absolutely right what stopped america and russia you know in, in the 60s about you know around the, the the cuban missile crisis and whatnot was there was backdoor conversations that you know outside of the public eye that would keep this from actually ever happening you can't imagine now those sort of options are open with North Korea, right? And Neil, to put to put some context on it, say for our listeners, so when we're talking about nuclear wars, what does it mean? So most people might just think Hiroshima, Nagasaki, you know, so that that's a, a certain kiloton weapon, 10, 15 kiloton weapon. But what are the weapons now? What is most likely to get used? And what would the resulting damage be from them? Because you paint that picture for us, Alex. Yeah, I can. Let me just say one thing, though, about the about the Russians. You know, it's tricky to parse talk, right? Talk is what we call signaling. So you might say to somebody, don't you come onto my property or I'll shoot you with a gun. You may not have any intention of shooting them with a gun, but the talk is meant to reinforce the environment. And so one of the tricky things with the Russians is trying to figure out, okay, they're clearly trying to send signals about what they do not want to happen. But that does not necessarily mean that they're actually threatening to actually use the weapons. So it's one of these things where uh, definitely the rhetoric has been there, though. Interestingly, the Russian rhetoric has often been couched in this sort of defensive way. Right. Don't you invade our territory? We still have nukes, which has always been true. Nobody's doubting this. But when you say that in this context, of course, it sounds like a threat. It's less of them saying we might use nukes against you preemptively. We're bad guys. They're not going to probably say that. Uh, they might hint back channel. Well, you never know. But again, that's a strategy. So it's tricky to parse that out. And I agree. It's difficult with North Korea in part because you don't have these uh, pathways. They may have spooky little back channel things between various advisors and various things uh, like that. But it's 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 not as well worn a relationship. You don't have decades and decades of mutual back and forth uh, to do it. Uh, modern nuclear war, uh, your question, it really depends on what we imagine as like the scenario, right? Are we talking about so-called tactical nuclear weapon use, which could be low kilotons, not against cities, right? Against tanks or something. Uh, Are we talking about uh, a single nuclear weapon going off for whatever purpose, right? Or are we talking about like some sort of real getting it out between, you know, Russia and the United States and NATO, the Russians have a wide variety of weapons types. They also have a wide variety of what we call yields, explosive power. So they go all the way down to low kilotons, maybe even sub kiloton for their tactical nuclear weapons, all the way up to around 800 kilotons, which is sort of their larger strategic uh, warheads. Most modern nuclear weapons uh, that are meant to be aimed at what they call strategic targets, which could be cities, industry, other nuclear weapons, military bases, what have you, they're in the range of the hundreds of kilotons, which to, to, to put it in relative terms, they're, you know, tens of times more than Hiroshima and Nagasaki, 20, 30 times maybe, 
but they're not as big as the Cold War weapons that were in the megatons, the millions of tons of TNT. So they're not these sort of metro area busters like the U.S. and the Soviet Union and other nations fielded. And and the reason is not be- that we don't have these giant, giant weapons anymore is not because we've all gotten so nice. Uh, there's technical reasons why bigger is not really better. And if you can get a the hundreds of kilotons is a very nice, we would say, package uh, where, where you're sort of able to get a very compact but still very effective weapon that if you can put that on a very accurate missile and maybe put 10 of them on one very accurate missile, uh, you can actually do a lot more damage than you could with these multi-megaton monsters that are maybe like the size of a school bus and very hard to get to your target. And there really aren't that many targets that require something that big and so on and so on. Right. Wow. So that so that was so essentially we we're not talking about the end of the world. We are talking about pockets of radioactive wasteland that could be re-inhabited in a number of years' time if the in the in the worst I mean, case scenario. It could be the end of the world. I don't know. I mean, the end of the world is such a vague term. Yeah, yeah. But uh uh you're still like a full nuclear war between let's imagine like today the Russia and the United States just launched everything they had at each other, which I'm not suggesting is a realistic scenario, but let's just imagine it. They each have in terms of strategic weapons, about uh, 1,500 weapons ready to go. 1,500 weapons. Those are the limits set by the New START Treaty. So they have more weapons than that in reserve. Let's imagine they can't use those because you would use those 1,500 to blow up any in reserve also. Uh, That's about 3,000 nuclear detonations going off at once. Now, depending on what you're aiming that at, 3,000, that's a pretty big number. You think about how many cities of import there are in Europe, Russia, and the United States. And, you know, 3,000 will probably take care of you, right? Like for for the big places. And if you are aiming at anything that's going to burn, you potentially could have climate impacts, uh, what they call nuclear winter. We don't really know if that would happen, but like that's a lot of megatonnage going off, potentially a lot of burning. The amount of radiation could be enough where, yeah, you could in a few weeks travel through some of these places, but you wouldn't want to live there for a very long time without cleaning them up in a substantial expensive way. And then on top of it, like just, I think COVID gave us a little preview of what a little, even a small tweak to the logistics pipeline can look like. Mm-hmm. What does the logistics pipeline look like when you knock out Western Europe, Eastern Europe, and the and, and much of North America, right? Like that's a very different world. So kill every person, probably not, but like radically change the world as we know it in a really awful way. Yeah, 100%. And and not to be too too selfish here or looking in our own backyard, <laughs> but would we be okay in Ireland? <laughs> because I have no idea. <laughs> like obviously, you know, we're we're I wouldn't say we're we're, we're the overly overly peaceful nation, but we're not, you know, a big big force in the world. Probably our neighbors in in Britain would be targeted, you know, because they they have bases there. For sure. I'm just wondering. <laughs> it sounds very selfish, but I'm just wondering: would we be okay if they took out, you know? Um, it's, it's a, it depends which way the wind's blowing. Which way yeah. the wind is blowing. <laughs> and, and also, I have no insight into what the Russians target. Who knows what they think about you? I mean, we know that they get bad intelligence at times. Everyone um, likes the Irish. Everybody yeah, yeah. Irish. I wouldn't imagine <laughs> that they would bother using a nuke <laughs> on a nation that was ostensibly pretty neutral most of the time. You know, right? But yeah. the British are going to... They They've got you know nuclear yeah. submarines they've got all sorts of stuff they're part of nato right they're so yeah the wind's blowing and uh, uh you know what happens to ireland when i mean it it'd be it'd make for nice fiction i like these kinds of questions right that's, what that's, happens to ireland what happens to- if, if <laughs> yeah if like like france and britain and a lot of nations around there are toast and uh, there's potentially a lot of radiation blowing over from these places in Europe and things. And uh, it, it's sort of like a different hemisphere on the beach, maybe. But, but you know, it, in a modern time, I think it'd be a great thing to explore. That, but that it's, it's uh, discussion. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> there you go. We, we, could, we could give you some insights, uh, Alex, here, here about what it'd be like, you know, get the Irish angle in there it'll certainly sell in ireland i'm not sure how well it would sell elsewhere you know but like let's talk about some of your work right mm. like this name he's the subject of a movie as well but he's, he's just such an intriguing character in history is oppenheimer can we can we talk about um 
him a little bit. Now, perhaps you could give us a little bit of background for, for some of the listeners who, who may not be familiar. I mean, his name is now current, is, is top currency because, because of the movie. But before that, he was, was he a bit of a shadowy figure that we didn't really know what he was up to? I mean, he's an intriguing character, right? Can you can you kind of paint that portrait for us a little bit? Sure. So J. Robert Oppenheimer was a American theoretical physicist who in the 1920s was sort of your scientist scientist, head in the clouds, never did anything practical. You know, you imagine the the, the scientist at the blackboard of impenetrable equations, chain smoking, a tiny group of students trying to understand anything he's saying, failing for the most part. He's he's literally doing things like writing over equations that he's already written over and hoping that the students will keep up and be able to tell the difference. Right. Uh, and then uh, during this time, he's also starts to get politically interested, uh, which in the 1920s, 1930s, Great Depression, he's at UC Berkeley, which is a pretty progressive liberal place. He ends up getting sort of close to a number of people who are communists and. Um, in the 40s, he is chosen, somewhat surprisingly, to be the scientific director of the Manhattan Project, which is the American project to build nuclear weapons in World War II, and uh, runs the uh, laboratory at Los Alamos. And uh, very surprising pick for all of the reasons I've mentioned. It's not like you'd look at him and think, here's a guy who can run essentially the creation of a new industry from scratch, uh, which is what they do in the Manhattan Project. And he's uh, successful by all accounts. He's very good at his job. And this propels him after World War II into being one of the sort of top advisors on nuclear energy to the United States. He becomes synonymous with sort of uh, scientific expertise. He, like Einstein, becomes a symbol of how this abstract knowledge can be turned into this uh, technology that might change everything in the entire world. Uh, and he's he's sort of writing very high and he does all sorts of work uh, in uh, behind the scenes to shape the direction of the American nuclear program. He tries to push for a treaty, basically, with the Soviet Union to ban nuclear weapons. It doesn't work out. He pushes against the building of the hydrogen bomb initially uh, for a variety of reasons. Uh, he, he really takes an active role. And then in the 50s, he has this downfall. The, his enemies, which he's acquired over this time come up with various excuses to bring up his decisions that he had made that they don't agree with, to bring up his connection with communists in the in the 30s, including his own family, where some of them were members of the Communist Party. And uh, he has his security clearance stripped from him. And this becomes a very public, embarrassing sort of thing. And he uh, essentially retreats from public life after that and has become sort of a metaphor for the sort of rise and fall of the scientist uh, from World War II to McCarthyism. He is sometimes brought up as a metaphor, sort of the way Galileo is for sort of the relationship between science and politics. Um, so he's a very complicated figure. And this is why he comes up in media and movies. And there have been plays and there's even been an opera about him where the he, he fits into a sort of cultural niche and gets into all these issues about the responsibility of scientists and can you be a ethical scientist and still build weapons of mass destruction and all these things um all of which complicates the historian's take on him because separate from his cultural symbolism he's a person and his cases are complicated and his policy is complicated and a lot of it was secret and only has been recently revealed and so uh, there's a sort of, I think, a disconnect often between how the public sees Oppenheimer in this represented representations. For example, the most common representation of him is almost like as a martyr mm -hmm. or as somebody who regretted making the atomic bomb and using it. And he absolutely did not regret using it ever. And he re rejected the idea in his lifetime that he was some kind of martyr. He rejected these things very in the strongest possible terms. He had very different view on the whole situation. We like to think of him as 
almost a Faustian character, right? Oh, he 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 sold his soul for knowledge and then suffered for it. He would absolutely have rejected that. That was not his mindset at all. He was much more complicated than than that. But like that's the sort of thing that is tricky to deal with the reality and the representation of him. Because like, there's that famous is it a quote attributed to him or or a phrase that he used? I am become death, the destroyer of worlds. Very dark, chilling phraseology. So that suggested that he 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 had in fact, if not, if not regretted, then certainly, you know, struggled with the idea that he 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 was instrumental in bringing this power into the world. Is 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 that not the case then? This is one of those things that's in some ways indicative of the difficulty of that disconnect I'm talking about because Oppenheimer said this. Well, he said that when he saw the first test of the atomic bomb a scene from the Bhagavad Gita, this Hindu epic came to his mind. And uh, he, he, he mentions this line, I am become death, destroy words, which is his own idiosyncratic translation because he learned Sanskrit at Berkeley. Cause of course he did. Uh, this is Oppenheimer. He didn't actually say this out loud, but it's one of these things where his own intellectualism, I think is confusing because he expects you, the reader to, of course, understand the part of the Bhagavad Gita he's referring to, and maybe even re recognize that it's his own translation and not a standard one, which of course nobody does who, I mean, if you study the Bhagavad Gita, you would, uh, but no Westerner studies the Bhagavad Gita most of the time, right? So the Bhagavad Gita, the part he's talking about, the Bhagavad Gita, among other things, it's a large work. It's the discussion between a prince and his chariot driver about whether he should go to war. And he doesn't want to go to war. He, he, It's a war of succession. He's fighting against his relatives. He doesn't want to do this. He doesn't want to kill people. He doesn't want to do this. And he becomes to realize in the course of this conversation with his chariot driver that his chariot driver is not a human being. It's, a, it's an avatar of a god disguised as a chariot driver. And the chariot driver is telling him, you have to go to war. It's your duty. It's your responsibility. I know you don't want to go to war, but you have to do it. This is what needs to happen right now. And you have to kill people. And not only do you have to kill people, you're not even really the one killing them. It's like fate that kills them. You want to talk about killing people? It's the gods that kill people. You're just like the instrument man. And you have to do this. This is your job. And so the scene he's talking about is when the prince realizes that the chariot driver is actually a god. And he says, show me your true form. And the god unveils in this blinding brilliance of a thousand suns and, you know, a million arms. And it's just like you just see some kind of god and you're just spellbound. And in that moment, the god says to the prince in Oppenheimer's translation, I am death. I am the destroyer of worlds. Not you, little man. I am. And in the normal translations of it, it's not even so much death. It's like, I am time. I am the death of all things eventually. You are the instrument. And this is so impressive that the prince goes, oh, my God, I got to do my duty. And he goes to war, right? So if you know all of this, again, mm. it takes 10 minutes to explain backstory. Mm. You read that quote really differently. Wow. Oppenheimer isn't saying, I'm God. He's saying, I'm looking at this thing in front of me and it's like seeing God personified and I am the prince who is in awe of the sight and I am the prince who does not want to go to war and doesn't want to hurt a fly and would rather sit at home and chain smoke and do my equations. But I see that I am just an instrument in this bigger picture and this is how I participate. So if you read it that way, the quote isn't about regret, it's about responsibility and duty and it's about justifying what he's doing. Which doesn't mean that he loves, he's not bloodthirsty for sure, but he yeah. justifies it. And this is, again, one of these examples where it's so hard to get this across without sitting down and explaining the whole damn thing, which of <laughs> course most people don't have the time or inclination. But when you see the quote by yourself, you're like, wow, that's a bitchin' quote, right? That's really yeah. like, oh, that's so hardcore. That's metal. Big but time. like the context is really different than what you might expect it to be. Man, I'm I'm so glad you explained that. I had no yeah. idea. <laughs> really, like that's that's a, that's a well worth ten minutes uh, going off <laughs> on a tangent because how many people know that stuff, Derek? That's the gold. That's the golden nugget. That's, that's the golden Derek nugget asked. right there. That like how many people are aware of this? This th that part of this podcast interview should be put into the school. <laughs> Yeah. Um, genuinely, because you know, have you Google his name? That 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 yeah, yeah. badass expression comes up, and instantly you think, "Man, this this guy, you know, he he really messed up his own his own head, but by, by by stumbling, you know, 
kind of blindly into creating this awesome power. But that that explanation right there is 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 gold dust. I mean, that's just changed my entire perception of of this. And this is one of the things I like about Oppenheimer is that like the reality is actually more interesting than the sort of basic version that people have like that's a much deeper discussion that you can then have from that point onward about Oppenheimer's feelings and about what we think about the making of weapons and our role in the world and our responsibility like that's a much more interesting take than the oh he became drunk with power or something like that which is how a lot of people read it so tell us has the U.S. government then does it see itself as the god? Does it see itself as the, the holder of all power? And in doing so, that's why the secrets are kept. Well, it, I would say that they see, if you ask them their official status, that the, they see themselves as almost like paternalistically, as like the responsible adults. And they see everybody else as being probably irresponsible adults and often cast them as children. But I I would point out, and I'm not the first to make this observation, we name almost every single one of our weapons after mythological gods. So I just want to say, if you're looking for who is the primitive peoples out there, uh, the the fact that we we name every son of... Oppenheimer never named his weapon after a god. That took the military to do <laughs> later. Uh, the things like the Trident missiles and the Poseidon and the Nike and the Zeus and all of these kinds of things. That's what the U.S. military likes to do. <laughs> and what sort of secrets are we talking about? So the nuclear secrets encompasses so many possible things it, 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 that it's hard to even break them down because it it starts at a sort of core of a few types of secrets. But if you take those seriously, it starts to sort of spread everywhere. It's one of the things that has made it um, once it sort of got in place, it became very sticky. It became very hard to dislodge. But so the canonical idea of like, what is a nuclear secret that most people have in mind is how do you make a nuclear weapon, right? The idea that there's like an equation or a process or a blueprint and uh, there are some things that are kept secret that would maybe help you make a nuclear weapon. But fundamentally, the the basic idea of how to make nuclear weapons, the basic idea of how they work, that's not a secret. It's more or less never been or not been in a sense that you could know it and no one else could. It, it's a form of science and engineering. If you do the research, you can make your own nuclear weapons. But the U.S. government has sought to keep that classified because the idea has always been, well, that'll make it a little bit more difficult for another country or terrorist or whoever the imagined enemy is. And if, if making it more difficult buys you more time, time is a valuable resource. So make it more difficult. The other types of secrets though, are things like how many nukes do we have? That was a secret for a very long time. That is not so much a secret today, but that was a secret for a very long time, especially when the number was very low, that was a secret. So initially the number was startlingly low. When when the um, Atomic Energy Commission took over from the Manhattan Project in 1947, the head of it was shocked to learn that the number of nuclear weapons the United States had ready to use was zero. They had zero nuclear weapons ready to use. They had parts for some weapons, but they had zero weapons that would be ready to use. Like, so that was kept very secret because if you knew that they don't really have an arsenal, that might change things. Things like where our weapons are aimed, uh, what their limitations are, things that might help an adversary uh, try to either think that they could start a preemptive attack or blunt an attack or something like that. But once you start going down these categories, if the number of weapons you have is secret, then your ability to calculate how many weapons you could produce become secret. And then that tells you that these plants are secret. How many people work at the plants become secret? One of my, my favorite examples in the Cold War is the amount of toilet paper at one of these giant facilities was classified because if you knew the amount of toilet paper, you could figure out how many people were working there. And if you know how many people were working there, you could figure out how much uranium they could produce. And if you know how much uranium produced, you could figure out how many weapons they might have, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So this is what I mean. You get these sort of cascades of secrets. And this is separate from even the diplomatic secrets, like where we keep our weapons abroad, whether or not we've lied to people about our weapons in the past. You know, like there's a million, how safe the weapons are. There's a lot of, uh, a possible secrets. 
and, and, and certainly there's quite a few secrets though around uh, accidents. Uh, you know, thankfully, I suppose the public would have been a little bit uh, too scared if they found out how close they came to nuclear disaster um, a number of times right throughout history, right? Yes, those were kept yeah. very secret. Some of those are still quite classified, but things where uh, you have bombers flying around with hydrogen bombs in them and occasionally they drop the bombs on accident or they crash themselves. And this has happened, uh, you know, many times by official reckoning and there's some evidence that things like this have happened in ways that we haven't even fully got the story of and even had them fall on foreign countries much less on our american soil and and that kind of stuff uh was kept very secret uh, as you're pointing out in part because we didn't want the american public or the publics of these other nations who are working with us to be quite aware at how close things could come because then they might reject our running these programs or using military bases on their soil and so on and so on. It makes a point as uh, what we were talking about earlier about how worried we might be of nuclear war and maybe it's more how worried we should be of nuclear accidents. So you have a thing called a nuke map. Can you tell us a little mm -hmm. bit about that. So NukeMap is a website which anyone can use uh, where you can essentially see the effects of a simulated nuclear weapon uh, anywhere in the world. And you can put in any kind of bomb you want. You can put in a little itty bitty bomb. You could put a World War II bomb. You could put in the biggest bomb ever made, whatever you want. And then you can set it off and it'll show you uh, different types of uh, distances where you'll have blast damage or or thermal damage enough to burn you or what have you, radiation. It can show you long-range uh, fallout possibilities. It can try to give you a rough estimate of how many people might die if the bomb was set off at a given place at a given time. So it's a simulator that I made uh, uh, some years back and I've continued adding to and have plans to continue adding to into the future uh, that is used to for people to a sort of experiment with what nuclear weapons can do in an intuitive sense. It, it almost yeah. sounds like fun, like a fun game to play. If you wanted to, you know, had an afternoon to yourself to find out, like we were talking about earlier, like how would we be, be affected in Ireland? But how did you get into all this, Alex? Like, yeah. <laughs> were you like Derek when you were growing up, uh, always conscious of imminent fire bombing, you know, going up in, in a big blast? Or did you just kind of stumble into it? I guess you didn't, you don't stumble into this sort of stuff, yeah. I guess. Well, it, it, you know, it's a funny path. It isn't something where... I always joke that people ask me how I got into this. They want a story like I was bomb born inside a nuclear bomb, right? Like they want some personal connection. And the the reality is I, I come at this from uh, a, a totally different angle. I started being very interested in history. Uh, I got very interested in the history of science, which is a specific sub-discipline of history. And it wasn't nuclear bombs initially. It was things like the history of physics, the history of biology, and uh, I got interested in it almost for because of its philosophical, uh, epistemological things. How do you know things? How do you how do people know things? How do they know if they know things? Right. That to me is an interesting question. And I like using history as a way to solve to, to think about that rather than, say, pure philosophy, because you can actually look at how people in the past did these things. You don't have to guess. Right. Yeah. And uh, through this line of work, I got interested in how people took knowledge they had and tried to make it useful in the world for both good and ill and ended up taking a bunch of courses on nuclear technology, nuclear weapons, because that's one of the most famous cases of this and found that really interesting. And I found the secrecy really interesting. I found the fact that, you know, the way I got into secrecy in particular, and this sort of is what ended up taking me on this whole nuclear path is I, I opened one of these books from the 80s about nuclear weapons that was written around the time that uh, uh, Derek was talking about, right? And it had a diagram inside of it about how one of the atomic bombs from World War II was built. And it was a it's just a beautiful diagram. It's by a researcher named Chuck Hansen. And it, it's it's an exploded view. So it's in like three dimensions, like you would do a like engineering blueprint of all of every little like screw on the bomb. And I was looking at this in the library as a student and I thought, how much of this is real? How much of this is made up? And if it's real, how do you, when did each of these things, this, this must have been secret at some point. So when did it stop being secret? What's the story? 
And that sort of got me thinking about, oh, you know, what we know about these weapons has changed over time. And if it's something changes over time, it means it has a history. And I'd never really can secrecy have a history at what point at one point it was not secret and another point it was secret or vice versa. Uh, how did that happen? And this ended up being something I spent a lot of time looking at and took me through just all sorts of different twists and turns and has made me as a nuclear historian and the initially yeah, it was about conditions for knowledge and what so just as an example the design for the nagasaki bomb the very basics it turns out it was declassified to use as evidence in the rosenberg trial and i thought well that's really specific right that's a really and you could look at exactly the moment and why it was released and how people responded to it and what that looked like. And it's got a whole little micro history just of that event. Uh, and, and it's got all these fascinating twists and turns like anything does. And uh, I thought, oh, that's really interesting. So that's what took me to this. So it's less of um, when I started doing this, it was not about it being relevant. It was not about me worrying about nuclear war. In fact, I had advisors telling me, oh, aren't nuclear weapons? Isn't that a done deal? Isn't this like not a thing to worry about? Why are you taking classes in Russian? Who cares about what the Russians are doing? That's not interesting. And ha ha, they were all wrong. It turns out this is all more relevant than I ever would have guessed. But maybe, I mean, I, I, I take a somewhat different path to it. And maybe that's why I, I sometimes see different stories than people who are coming to it, either because they had some deep connection or they're very strongly motivated by the politics or whatever. Yeah. Brilliant. Isn't that, isn't that why your history is so great? Like it was true, your interest in history that brought you to this specific in, interest you never yeah. yeah you never know where it brings you like you know myself and Derek Roth Bond is saying like Derek history is right up to yesterday you know it doesn't have to yeah. be you know back back in the pyramids days it's it's history is unfolding as as we speak yeah, I, I find it really sad that in the United States, anyway, history is a very unpopular subject uh, in high school and in college because students associate it with memorizing things. Yes. Yeah. And it I, I can't memorize anything. I'm terrible at this. The only mm. stuff I know, I know it because I do it every day. And anything you do every day and read about every day for years and years, you will just, you know, pick up. And uh, uh, and I you know, if you teach history well, I mean, how can you not be interested? It's literally everything any human being has ever done. If you can't find something in history that's interesting to you, you're dead to the world, right? Like this is anything. You could do the history of people. I, I took a, I, I knew a professor in college who did the history of sex, like, right? Like yeah. you, you cannot find a top, do whatever you want. There's a history yeah. of it. And it's really sad that it, it's, got, and, and I almost think politically motivated that it has this reputation of being boring because uh, uh, it's powerful as well. And people don't want you to, there, there are people who don't want you to look that deeply at the history of how the world got to be the way it is, because it's not necessarily, uh, uh, it, it might make you want to change things. Exactly. Yeah. That's why it's, that's why it's so important. You know, and my daughter, my 10 year old daughter has just finished a project on how the, the, the beginning of the causes of world war one. Uh, you know, it was supposed to take a week, six weeks later, we're still working on it. You know, like we're just, <laughs> <laughs> her mother is like, you know, that should have been submitted a long time ago. I was like, no, we're not even begin start to begin yet. You know, so <laughs> I, I completely agree. I, like we're all preaching, you know, we're all singing from the same hymn sheet here. Like, you know, history is just like one brilliant story after another. Yeah, look, some of it is not of particular interest to some people, but there's something there for everybody. I, we're going off on a little bit of a tangent here, but that's that's fine because we're on a, yeah. a hip historian's uh, podcasts yeah. you know so but that that's why we, we we have a wide listenership as well derek isn't it it's not just dates and dusty tomes off a shelf you know it's some of that some of that but you know this it's just stories it's human interest there's like like you said the history of sex there's, there's a history of water the history of air you know it's just there's there's stories yeah, yeah. There. And, and, and you and you get speaking to somebody about nuclear secrets and end up talking about the bhagavad gita huh? exactly so, that, that, so there's a free education there folks you know right yeah, there yeah, for sure um, for sure we, we need nearly kind of need to wrap it up Alex, i know you're probably busy there but i'm Still got to, I don't want to dominate the last few questions, but I I do have two. One of them is when you were writing the book, did you push up against any sort of, did you get any sort of pushback in terms that you were, you were crossing some sort of boundary or some sort of line? We're talking about secrets here and we're talking about nuclear secrets. So was there some sort of boundaries that you could not cross or no? Well, the, the way it works is I try to find out things and maybe the government doesn't want me to know them. 
And when they don't want me to know them, they they black them out on things I ask for. And sometimes I go back and say, hey, I bet you can black out less of that under your regulations. And occasionally they do. And sometimes they say, nah, we're going to black it all out. Every single word is secret. And I'm like, really? Even the ands, even the thes. And, uh, you know, you do your best. The danger is that when you do this kind of work, you can imagine that the government censor is sitting there on a tower and going, I will not give him what he wants because I am arbitrary and capricious and mean. And one of the things I have tried to do in the book is not imagine that that's how it works, that that's the, the voice of the censor. And what I try to actually spend a lot of time on, maybe too much time on, is like, showing you what the censor is actually doing, which you can often do historically because even their internal deliberations sometimes eventually get declassified and you can see them arguing internally over like, well, can we release this information? Well, maybe, but you know, here's the downside and what's the upside and here's what we're afraid of and here's the context. And, and in the end, this gets rendered as just something deleted and people on the outside can imagine whatever rationales they want for why it was deleted because the censor ironically cannot tell you why they deleted something because that would give away information as well. And so restoring a sense of the censor is for me important if you want to like really understand this in non-cartoony terms, but that also means that when I get something that I'm frustrated with, I try not to imagine them in cartoony terms, even though it's sometimes very hard for me to imagine why they would want something not declassified or something like this. I also try to remember, this is just somebody doing their job, and they're usually, no offense to them, pretty boring, and it's not a very exciting job, and their job is kind of an impossible one. They've been given pretty, at times, vague guidelines, and they're trying to implement them, and if they get them wrong in the direction of giving me too much information, they can lose their job, and if they get it wrong in the direction of withholding too much information, nobody will care. So understandably, they tend to withhold more. Uh, uh, and I get why, because they're not paid enough to put their neck on the line for me. What do they care about me? Uh, but anyway, that's mostly the kind of, if I was going to say pushback, I don't have any uh, stories of shadowy government figures coming to me and saying, Wellerstein, you can't go here. It's too <laughs> dangerous. I mean, I, 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 am, I, I do know that they are aware of my work and they are aware of the kind of stuff I do. I have had various indications along these lines in the past that they know who I am, uh, but I've never gotten the indication. Uh, my sense, and maybe this is naive, is that anyone who looked at what I did would would have my ticket pretty quickly, which is to say, oh, this guy isn't a spy. He is a boring academic who wants to do boring academic things like talk about the epistemology of secrecy, which, while, you know, uh, uh, fascinating, this probably does not constitute an active national security risk. And I have no access to classified information. Uh so like what's the worst i can do so yeah no no kind of whispered kind of down in the car basement you know in the parking lot at late night there's no shadowy figures standing there in trench coats and smoking a cigarette going hey you're going too far here alex you know none of that stuff none the of that fed stuff. the fed the feds i have met don't look like that they look like <laughs> like like look like high school football players gone to seed uh and but uh, and they're they're pretty mostly pretty reasonable you know the only people i've ever had talk to me about my work in any kind of shadowy tones uh it's not the secrecy stuff it's the like the nuke map stuff and i've had people say to me and never active people it's people who are retired right i knew a guy who's ex cia and he would say is this the kind of thing do you do you worry that like an enemy could use this for nefarious purposes to figure out how to best kill lots of people? And my answer is always, well, if you've gotten to that stage, it's too late, right? If yeah. if a terrorist has a nuclear weapon, it's not exactly rocket science to know that if you set off a bomb in a very dense area, it will kill a lot of people. Uh, and it's very easy to look up where the people live. Uh, and also, if you're talking about enemy nations, I guarantee you they have more sophisticated tools than this. Anyway, everything that's in there is declassified. It comes from things the U.S. government published in the 70s. So like to to argue that maybe if you kept it hidden, nobody with a nuclear weapon would be able to figure out where to aim them. I mean, this is ludicrous, right? Like this is not that's not a reasonable uh, fear in my mind. But that's the only thing I've ever had anybody wonder. And even then, it's not somebody saying don't do this it's somebody just asking I, I you know one thing i would just say i would love it love it 
if the U.S. government tried to censor my work. I would love it because A, the legal grounds would be super shaky and B, oh my God, how many books would I sell if I could yeah. if that happened? So I, they are aware of that. And in my book, I discuss at which point they, in history, they become fully cognizant of the fact that if they try to censor people who are not under their control in a ham-handed way it actually backfires but they're very aware of that very good you know like i'm sorry derek for dominating all the questions i hope you don't mind um but there's just just one that really as soon as i i, I found out we we're going to have you on board i thought right well here's my opportunity to ask this question um because i actually you know i debate historical things with people but i i got into a kind of a row with a colleague over this point because you know Anyway, here's the point. When when America was was debating about invading Japan, the, so this was a real operation. I can't remember the name of the operation at the time, but they'd already done the bloody island hopping campaign through the Pacific, lost how many thousands of Marines on Iwo Jima, bloody Tarawa. So they had all these casualty figures. They knew what to expect, right? And Japan had kind of marshaled all its remaining kamikaze fleets like thousands of planes thousands of planes they were going to arm all the citizen citizenry the peasantry were all going to be armed so like they had come come up with some sort of vague casualty figures for the first few months of invasion of up to possibly a million uh military casualties i think so what happens is to shortcut that they drop the atomic bomb right and then they drop the second one uh on nagasaki and then the japanese capitulate saving arguably one million American military casualties. So the debate is this. It was the right thing to do. Like, to put it very, very, very simply, if I, if I was in those American commander's shoes, there would be no, no debate, no debate whatsoever. It's a horrible thing to have to decide because you're, you're, you're if essentially the majority of casualties are going, are going to be civilians. But if you're in charge or control or responsible for millions of American lives, no debate there whatsoever. What's your take on that? So it's really tricky. And it's one of these things that's made trickier by the fact that that whole version that you put forward was that version of what the they were thinking and what choices they had in front of them. That was created after the war. That was created uh, initially in 1947 by the Secretary of War, Henry Stimson. He wrote an article for Harper's Magazine called The Decision to Use the Bo Atomic Bomb, which we could just call that the decision to use the bomb narrative. And he basically said, look, here's what we had to do. We had a choice between invading or using the bomb. We weighed it very carefully, and it was with a heavy heart. We decided that using the bomb was the better answer. And there's aspects of that which are true. And there are aspects of that which are after-the-fact rationalizations and don't reflect actually what they were thinking or their decision-making process for what alternatives were in front of them at all. Right. And it's interesting to point out that the reason Stimson wrote that in 47 is because there was a growing chorus of people saying that the bombs weren't necessary. And the chorus of people were not talking hippies. The military leaders, it was Eisenhower, it was Leahy, it was people who were in those rooms were saying we didn't need to use the atomic bombs. The Japanese were already beaten. We didn't even need to invade. And this is what the U.S. Strategic Bombing Survey concluded. And I'm not saying those people are right. I'm just giving you the context of why this narrative got created to justify it that makes it into a bomb versus invade. If you go down the path of bomb versus invade, it's impossible not to conclude the bombing is the better idea. But if you back up a little bit and see, well, what were they actually looking at? Uh, it's actually pretty complicated. For one thing, they, the casualty figures that they had on the table were not as high as those later ones. And I'm not saying they were right or wrong. The military was in some ways downplaying the number of casualties that they expected because they didn't want to make Truman uh, afraid to authorize this invasion, which they thought was necessary because they did not have an atomic bomb when they were authorizing this. They were authorizing this in June of 45. The bomb hadn't been tested yet. It was not something that was part of their you know, discussions at all. By the time they have the bomb, they have somewhat different concerns because now they know that the Soviet Union is going to enter into the war. They think that is probably going to totally change the, the, the calculus for the Japanese on invasion. If the Soviet Union declares war on the Japanese and invades their territories in Korea and Manchuria and places like that, potentially plans to invade their islands. Uh, the interesting thing for me is that there was no bomb or invade discussion. 
it was bomb and invade. They don't know if the bomb is going to end the war. How would they know that? They're not clairvoyant. Mm -hmm. Why would they not use the atomic bomb? You think they cared that much about Japanese civilians? Of course they didn't. For a lot of reasons that we can understand, we don't have to agree they were right or wrong, but like we, they were already bombing Japanese cities every day. They had already bombed out every major city in Japan with napalm. What, what, what's the moral issue here, right? For, from their perspective, what reason did the people who were at the top of this pyramid which basically doesn't include Truman as an aside. He's not a major player in this discussion, but there are other people who are having these discussions. What reasons do they have not to use the atomic bomb? Uh, uh, they had almost a, a million reasons that they thought it would be a good idea. Maybe it'll end the war earlier. We spent a lot of money and time making it. Wouldn't it be irresponsible for us not to use it if it had any chance of saving any lives at all? We have a new weapon. Of course we're going to use it. Of course we destroy cities. That's a useful thing to do uh, in this waging of this war. We've already made that commitment. It might spook the Soviets and show them who's boss. This was part of their thinking. Uh, the scientists, just to loop it back to Oppenheimer, right? Even they are basically uh, the ones who are at the top of the pyramid, not every scientist. There were some scientists who didn't want to drop the bomb, but they were essentially kept out of these conversations. Oppenheimer is uh, deeply afraid that the next war will be the fatal one. It will be the big nuclear war. And he believes that the best way to avoid that is to scare the world. How do you scare the world about nuclear weapons? How about the first use of them be the most awful thing you could imagine? So even in that perspective, you think that this is a good idea. They have a million reasons to want to use the bomb. They are still planning to invade. They are actually shocked that the war ends as quickly as it does and are not quite prepared to it, uh, not quite ready for it, which is just to say, the problem with that narrative you have is that it presupposes them asking questions that they didn't ask for right or wrong, because like that wasn't what they were thinking about at all. And so you, we can argue today over whether or not they could have pursued other alternatives. They could. They had other alternatives on the table. They could have demonstrated the bomb without killing any. They could have um, waited for the Soviet Union to declare war and then see if that ended the war without it. They could have done a couple things, but like that would have imagined that they were trying to save lives of Japanese civilians. And that wasn't what they were trying to do for better or worse. And so it becomes kind of anachronistic to imagine that this was a, an issue for them. So anyway, I'm not saying it's right or wrong. I'm just saying, if you look at it strictly historically, this whole question was just not on the agenda. Right. Right. Yeah. Very well answered. Very well answered. Maybe it should have been. I, you know, I don't know, but we can just, I don't have any problem with people asking whether or not that should have been a concern, but strictly historically, it was not a concern. No, no it makes perfect sense. They wouldn't have known. when. The, how could they know? How could they, how know? Would they know? Like you just pointed yeah. out, like, you know, I, I never really considered that. They they didn't have the benefit of hindsight. They didn't know what was going to happen. They right. didn't know if it was going to work. And, and so <laughs> amazingly, once it looks like it worked, even in their own minds, I think they rewrite the whole thought process to fit that. Oh, of course we knew two bombs on two cities in three days would do it. That's how I like to talk about them using it, by the way, because even that reveals choices, right? Targets, timing, how many, things like that. And you can get into all of these different people involved. Why did they do one thing? Why did they make one? Why did they do those cities? Why did they only have three days in between them? Uh, uh, why didn't they have another bomb ready to go? Uh, uh, as an aside, I'll just uh, my, my my next book, which I'm intending to write over the next year, will dive very deeply into this specific topic because there's right. a lot that's been overlooked even by historians on this question and certainly by by everybody else. Well, myself and Derek will be first to the queue to buy that one, won't we, Derek? Sure. We'll have to, yeah, please, please come back and, and talk to us about that. feel like we're only getting started. Alex, I have to say, you know, and I mean this as a real compliment, you would be a fantastic dinner party guest. And I hope the subject, but, you know, you, you, you tell a great story. You really, yeah. really do. And, uh, you know, you, you, you put it out there in ways that people can understand and can actually, you know, in, get invested in um, and it comes across in your book restricted data as well so if anybody wants to get frightened there in the wits uh, or check out new map obviously as well do 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 it and uh, thank you so much alex wellerstein it's been a, a real, real pleasure thanks alex thank you so much it's been really fun well who knew where we would have ended up with that one um you know i certainly knew when you posed the whole off and off <laughs> quote oh there's no way did you think that was going to end up uh going down the, the hindu uh, route that's for sure
amazing stuff because I'm so familiar. As, as so many people are with the, if you if you know the name Oppenheimer, you have that kind of big scary quote. It's 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 you know I am death, the destroyer of worlds. He didn't even know what it, I thought he said that himself. I thought he was like <laughs> amazing stuff. Brilliant. That's why you know it's great. Some particular episodes, you just come away going, man, you just learned. We got learned. Yeah. We got learned it's, there, you know. It's a great way. So that's the thing. It's a very, I mean, the thing that the, the audience can't obviously see because this is audio, but mm. it's how animated a character he is. And that's <laughs> right. why I say if you great dinner party guest, he just, you know, you, you're right there with him and he's yeah. just so excited about this stuff. And uh, as historians, that's that's us, you know, that's exactly what, what, what we're And like. that, that, that kind of explains why we went a little bit overboard on the time as well, yeah. because like you said, you just get caught up in his stories. But we, we'll end it here. Jared, yeah. Thank, thanks everyone for sticking around. Yeah, hopefully, you, if you stick to this, if you've st stick with this far, it, 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 you, you got as much out of it as myself and Derek did. Yeah. So, fair play to you. <laughs> right. Take care, everyone. Bye bye. Goodbye. I would like to take just a moment to thank all the Hipstorian followers for your support during the first five months of the show both myself and neil are delighted that so many of you are enjoying what we do here we plan to continue and expand our efforts into the future as you can probably appreciate it does cost to produce the show and we have been funding this ourselves there is a link within the episode where you can make a one-time one euro enjoyment donation We'd very much welcome uh, any donations at all. In fact, we will be offering a paid subscription tier. More on that later. And anyhow, if uh, you don't have it, don't worry. Keep tuning in. We'll be here.